0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko's been in business for more than 100 years, and it's been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It has been manufacturing many of them right in America, in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. Keiko has a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, and it works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's K-A-C-O-NewEnergy.com. From Greentech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Well, the Tesla solar roof is finally here. After months of speculation about cost and logistics, we now have more detail on the product. We're going to look at how it compares to regular solar and regular roofs, and where it will fit into Tesla Energy's long-term solar plan. Then, Walmart's Project Gigaton, a look at the mega-retailer's new plan to slash emissions deep in its supply chain. And finally, after four months, we have some nominees for America's top energy regulator, FERC. We're going to talk about how they could shape the country's energy landscape over the next few years. And with me to talk about those topics are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my co-host as usual. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions based in Washington, D.C., and sources tell me... A candidate to take over Jim Comey's position as director of the FBI.
1: Oh, gee, I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> that just does not sound like a good gig.
0: <laughs> Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital based in New York City. And I heard that you were making plans to move back to Washington,
2: D.C., yeah? I am in June. We're moving back to to DC. So, is this so the in- first
0: public pronouncement?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure that it actually deserves a public pronouncement. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yes. Wait,
1: what happened to the swamp? Oh draining? my
2: god! Oh my god! I am adding to the swamp. <laughs>
0: And I I can only presume that you've got a job in the administration as Trump's climate wealth advisor, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. No, I will be continuing with Generate Capital opening up their Washington, D.C. office of one.
0: We start this week with a defining product for Tesla, the much-ballyhooed solar roof. We've been talking about this thing since last August when Musk offhandedly mentioned it during an earnings call, if you'll remember. Um, It kind of took Solar City executives Lyndon Rive and Peter Rive by surprise at the time. I'm not sure they were really ready to mention it, but Musk uh, just kind of mentioned it and then everybody, of course, wanted to know what was this solar roof? Sure enough, in October, Musk took to a stage at Universal Studios in Los Angeles, standing among these mock houses and and he showed off the company's new solar tiles made out of tempered glass. So it was a real product after all. Um, We got the sensational Muskian presentation we all expect but we never got pricing details or really any details aside from aesthetics. Now we have them, consumers can pre-order the tiles finally, and the first installations will come this summer. More importantly we've got some cost estimates. Tesla unveiled this calculator that will let consumers roughly figure out um the the cost for different roof configurations and yesterday musk joined uh jb Straubel, who's tesla's cto and co-founder and SolarCity city chief technology officer peter rive uh, on a conference call with reporters to go over the details and so we're going to go over some of those ourselves firstly is the most important factor which obviously tesla was getting a lot of questions about price um, tesla says that for the average american house covered with 35 percent solar tiles it will cost 21.85 per square foot. That says the company makes it less expensive than a traditional tile or metal roof, but others who've done the calculations say it's still much more expensive than conventional solar and uh, a roof retrofit. So let's let's break this down further. Um, and you know, it really depends on how you're doing the calculations and what your assumptions are and where the solar roof is actually installed. So you can come up with a bunch of different numbers for the solar roof. Jigger um no matter how we do these calculations the price point does come in lower than anyone expected how did it compare
2: to your expectations so i think first of all i can't imagine how much free press tesla gets for itself like it's just it's just like awe inspiring how all of us sort of like just march in line when they have something to talk about Especially something that isn't really ready for prime time. Um, so, I mean, I think we should start there and be like, how does he keep doing that? Well, it is a
0: good question. People pay attention. We can see it in the way traffic drives to our site, people are searching for this. We're getting traffic in different ways when it comes to a Tesla solar product. So there's a consumer pull to this. There's
2: actually legitimate interest in Tesla that's different than other companies. No, I have so- relatives who literally have emailed me this morning saying, I was thinking about getting solar on my roof. Now I think I want a Tesla roof. So I agree with you completely. It's like it's, um, it's far more than just our solar like audience. It's actually... Um, you know, the general public who gets involved. Yeah. And I just talked to
0: Barry Cinnamon, who has been on this show before, and he's written some pieces. He actually speculated on what the cost could be. And I talked to him on the phone and he said, I cannot tell you how many customers have asked me about the solar roof. You know, and a local installer won't be installing the solar roof, but customers who are sitting around the kitchen table making these decisions are asking about the product. So, you know, that's the reason why we pay attention to uh, an announcement from Musk, Differently than maybe a lot of other
2: companies. No, I I think it makes sense. I so so I did a lot of quick math and I ref, I went to a friend of mine who is in the integrated you know solar roof um, business for some help and um, there's a couple of major assumptions that I think that the Bloomberg folks um, didn't really get right when I talked to them about it. They they estimated this was about two dollars and fifty two cents a watt installed. I think it's actually closer to three thirty. A watt installed. So I actually don't think it's as cheap as other people think. And the reason but is 330 is not that expensive. It is kind of actually. I mean, Barry is routinely invest, uh, installing systems for 220 a watt right now in California. So it's a pretty big difference. And so there's a couple of things here. One is that the size of the system has to be massive. So these systems do not pencil at less than seven kilowatts in size. So all of the assumptions that they're making on balance of system costs are for larger systems. And if he actually moves to a 40% solar roof coverage ratio, he's talking about a nine kilowatt solar system, which is higher than most people are buying now. So we should start there, right? So he's basically assuming people have an electric car, all those things, which is a good assumption for him to make but it's important for people to know that if you have a four kilowatt need, this isn't going to work for you. I think the second thing he's doing is estimating that they have far more exposed area than I think the Bloomberg guys are, are assuming far more exposed area than I think is going to happen. So I think they're going to use the 23.5 percent efficiency Panasonic cells out of Buffalo. And then they're probably only going to be able to get like a 50 percent exposed area ratio which means that like 50% of the tile is not active. Um, So that means 13.5% to 15% net efficiency. Actually, not 50%, sorry, close to 65%. So I think the net efficiency is lower than a crystalline panel that's cheap, that's 18% efficient. Um, And so when you add all those factors together, I think you get to like 330 a watt, not 252. That sounds about right. We've
0: done a couple different calculations over here, and depending on kind of what you assume, it's between roughly like two eighty a watt to the mid threes or so. Um, which which I guess gets us to the
2: question of who is this product for? Um, for wealthy people that have wealthy roofs. Exactly. For, I mean, like I mean to be clear, this is something that has been around for years, right? It's just Elon Musk productized now. Like, I had a Atlantis SunSlates uh roof on my roof that I installed in 2007 in DC at like $9 a watt, which made huge financial sense because I had a slate roof. It was going to cost me $50,000 to replace that roof with a new slate roof that lasts 75 years or whatever. And so, you know, like, it actually cost me less than $50,000 to replace that roof. So it saved me money from day one. So... So this has been around for years. It's not a new proposition. Yeah, but weren't there problems
0: with some of those earlier systems because you needed to poke so many holes in the roof because of degradation issues? You know, the wiring oh, was, was super funky.
2: It was total crap. I was, like, troubleshooting that system for the rest of time, but <laughs> it made sense because I saved the money on the slate roof, so even if there were dumb tiles, I was cheaper than buying new slate. And then on top of that, I was getting $400 a megawatt-hour SRECs from DC. So, like, the numbers... Paid for itself many times over. But, like, but no, he's definitely pushing for people who have tile roofs, slate roofs, more expensive roofs than asphalt shingle.
1: Yeah. So, on their website, they have kind of all those costs broken down and they have the value of energy, the cost of the roof, the cost of the power wall. So, they suggest that you put a power wall with the solar roof to make sure that you can keep your home running during an outage. But one of the things they also advertise on here is that there's a 30% solar investment tax credit that applies to the cost of the tiles and equipment as well as the power wall batteries and that is not right. Because right now the only people who've been taken who've been able to take advantage of the investment tax credit who have storage, which would be the power wall, have had to have pri- private letter rulings from the IRS to do so and And the IRS is not doing any rulings right now. And so not only is the- Details, details. Well, I mean, it's part of his pitch on the cost. And if you want to get a power wall, you're not going to get the 30% ITC until the IRS moves on that and really clarifies the code. But also the 30% solar investment tax credit is going to go down to zero for residential. So it is phasing down. So it just seems that that's something that should be a little more clear on his on his website as he as he pitches this to people that that's they 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 need to not expect that.
0: It's a really good point, and I and I wanted to ask you about that tax credit piece, Catherine, because if you all remember, Solyndra's business case was the fact that they could take the tax credit because the system was integrated into the roof, so they could actually claim the tax credit against the roof and the solar system. If you have a solar roof with, you know, 60% inert tiles. Can you just claim the tax credit on 40% of that roof? I mean, do we know how that will all shake out?
1: No, I think you'd have to get clarity. I think you would actually have to get a private letter ruling because you'd have to show what the efficiency was, you'd have to show a percentage. Um, I don't think it's as clear cut as the website leads you to believe
2: so let's just but let's just assume that they are going to do that work for you and it'll be hard for the first 10 but then they'll get to some sort of regular process i look the thing about this that i like i mean just to not be negative here is that i really do believe that a product like this is essential to for us to move from the early mass market that we're at now on the customer adoption curve to the full mass market like i just know Many, 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 many people whose spouses do not want a solar system on the roof, like because they think it's going to affect resale value. And no matter how many NREL reports they read that show that that's not true and whatever else, it's just something that is preventing them from going solar because the South facing part of the roof is the front of the house and they just don't want to have it there. And so I do think that a product like this is essential. And whether it's Tesla that succeeds or whether it's my friend's company at, you know, Suntegra or whether it's like, you know, a, a product that looked like Dow shingles or like the many other folks that are in the space, I do think that this is a moment in time that is forcing people to think about this, forcing folks at Gre- G- Green Tech Media and others to write about this. And I think we are going to be able to move the ball forward towards the full mass market.
1: Yeah, that's what interests me. Jigger is kind of the way um, Stephen, when you were on the show with Matteo, asking him how he developed the storage piece that he started with the home system. So if you can get this working on roofs and get uh, you know establish some you know credibility, and you've got the data on those systems that are installed, then maybe you can move on to markets where you would use the same type of roof, but for commercial establishments, whether it's community centers or other sort of larger facilities where you really get it out beyond just residential.
0: You know, I'm actually more bullish about the prospects for the roof than I I thought I would be, because at least when you compare it to a concrete or a a tile or a slate tile roof, the, the numbers are within a fairly normal range. So it probably is more expensive than a conventional solar system. You know, it's probably a little bit more expensive than a conventional roof, but there is actually real value here depending on where you live. And, you know, the cost per watt, at least as I've seen it penciled out by different organizations, is within a somewhat normal range. You know, you said, Jigger, it's more expensive than what local installers are doing, but Tesla customers are certainly willing to pay a premium and we're not looking at costs that are exorbitant here.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to finish the thought on the slate roofs. I mean, slate roofs are supposed to last fifty plus years, and they do cost fifty to seventy five thousand dollars to do. So they are expensive roofs. Um, but I, but I think to your your point. I don't think this has to actually be cost effective. I don't think the fact that like you know Barry can install a system for like two twenty a watt and you know and this is going to be at three thirty a watt matters. I I honestly think this just has to be in the range. People don't want to pay double for this integrated roof. They want to pay something that feels and looks the same, which is what Elon is sort of suggesting. But I don't think that that's the bar. I think the bar is there are a lot of people out there who actually want a roof that is solar but doesn't look like solar to everyone. That's not me. I want to brag about my solar system, but for a lot of people, they sort of want it to look clean and a nice aesthetic and integrated, and they don't want to pay a lot more for it.
1: Yeah, and you know where there are a lot of slate roofs are in France. They're everywhere. You you go down the streets of Paris, and every single roof is slate.
0: Well, Tesla's starting small. They're going to manufacture in Fremont for a little while, sell systems in California to start off, and then they're going to move into the Buffalo facility, which they did say is going to scale up and produce these solar roofs. Um, There were some questions about whether that Buffalo facility would actually even go forward. And Peter Rive yesterday on a press call with reporters said, Yep, we're, um, you know, I think given what they said earlier, they are behind schedule, but. He did say we're full steam ahead in building the factory and producing this solar roof. Um, So they're going to start small, move to other states, expand the Buffalo facility, and then go international. And a market like France is probably uh, a natural choice. You know, I was really struck at how Elon described the scaling up of this market, because he usually talks in these sweeping terms about um, how incredible Growth will be and how big demand is. He did say that they are not limited by demand, that they're sort of limited by manufacturing capacity and their ability to scale. But he has talked over the last few weeks about this being a multi decade opportunity and not something that's going to scale up in the next few years. So, you know, the question is whether this will make up a significant market share of SolarCity Tesla installs in a few years, or whether this is really a five, 10-year play. And uh, my guess is that it's more of a medium and long-term play, given how Elon's talked about it.
2: There's certainly a lot of details here around wiring and all the other pieces, but I don't really think that that's important right now. I honestly think what's important right now is to say that they're in the range That, you know, they probably won't produce these on time and on schedule. It probably is going to be delayed in true Elon form. But I do think that with the tax credit, you know, extension and, you know, the runway that we have, this brings some much needed excitement to the residential solar industry, which I think everyone really needs right now, given all the bad news in the residential solar space. Let's uh, freeze for a moment and talk about Keiko New Energy
0: our sponsor of the Energy Gang. Thanks so much to Keiko for being a supporter of the show. Keiko is, of course, one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, which is a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications, and leading utility-scale developers continue to choose Keiko, because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverters and its commitment to quality at keiko newenergy.com. That's K A C O newenergy.com. Back in 2005, Walmart announced a uh, pretty ambitious plan to slash tens of millions of metric tons of CO2 from its supply chain. It was part of the first wave of ambitious corporate sustainability plans addressing climate, but it was also seen by some as greenwashing. Well, Walmart exceeded its goals, and last month released a new plan to slash one gigaton or one billion metric tons of CO2 from its supply chain by 2030. That's a big deal. That really is a big deal. And it will do that by cutting the hardest emissions of all, Scope 3 emissions. That's the CO2 caused by suppliers that Walmart doesn't have direct control over. So it's going to have to work even harder to help those companies implement their own plans. Does this set a new bar for multinational corporations? And how logistically complicated is such a plan? Um, First to you, Catherine, what's the significance here?
1: Yeah, this is huge because Walmart with its supply chain, as you say, the scope three, those operations over which it doesn't have control, it does have a supply chain over which it can still exert some Control by deciding who they want to, you know, prefer to purchase from, who they want to put on the shelves. With this um, project, they they have these sustainability leader badges that they put on different products, so people understand uh, where they come from. I mean, I think this is a big deal from a leadership perspective, um, and also really from moving the needle. So I, I think it'll make a big difference. And what it is specifically, if people want to go on the website, you can go onto to walmart sustainabilityhub.com. And it's really an app and a platform to allow suppliers to be able to kind of engage in these six pillars of sustainability, which include energy, but also include agriculture, waste, packaging, deforestation, and product use. So all these different pieces that feed into sustainability writ large. Um, and I don't know if you all remember, but in 2008, uh, Walmart changed its logo from always low prices to save money, live better. So this is the live better piece of it. And I really do think they're going to move the needle.
0: Yeah, they're, they're really serious about this. So Jigger, when you were at the Carbon War Room, you guys spent a ton of time on these kinds of supply chain issues. Um, how ambitious do you think this is? And how hard is it to tackle these Scope 3 emissions as uh, Catherine just described them?
2: So the thing I like about Walmart is, um, I mean, I was the one who flew to Bentonville many, 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 many times in 2005, six and seven to convince them to put solar on their roof. So I know them pretty well from that effort. And Walmart doesn't come to these things lightly. Um, I think that they are actually, you know, sort of really deliberate about the science-based targets and trying to figure out whether it's possible. They're not really looking for the press release. And so I think that's a big deal. The bigger deal here, honestly, is not Walmart per se, although I think they're going to be very genuinely trying to reach this target. It's actually all the nonprofit groups. So they now have a license to go and harangue and berate the suppliers to Walmart on Walmart's behalf. Uh, to be able to get these gigaton scale reductions, and so Walmart's really leveraging all of the nonprofit money in the world and saying, "Hey, go beat up our suppliers in China and everything else. You have our permission."
0: You know, Walmart has an advantage here because of its um, its relationships with its suppliers, and it has been, you know, notoriously good at driving prices down. So while it can't set a policy for its suppliers. It can certainly do a lot to cajole them, to educate them, to you know work closely with them to lower their emissions profile, which one would think uh, is somewhat similar to the the process of lowering lowering prices. So Walmart has an advantage here, given its you know the way it works with its suppliers.
1: Well, and one thing Walmart does keep in mind is they do want to pass the lower prices on to their. Cons- customers. So it's it's not just that they're they are trying to do the right thing but they're also really trying to keep their margins and I think that I mean I I work with the folks at Walmart on state regulatory issues and they are in every single state battle on behalf of consumers everywhere because they really want to make sure that any policies that come out from utilities and regulatory processes are really beneficial to other companies like Walmart. And they said, you know, there may be a couple of other companies out there, but we're really on the front lines. And so they're fighting the battles internally with their supply chain and also really out front on the regulatory processes to make sure that they can reduce costs and keep things, um, you know, allow themselves to profit, but also allow their customers to benefit.
0: If, if you're a consumer and you're comparing these policies and environmental performance matters to you, but you're still willing to shop at, say, a, a large retailer like a Walmart or Amazon, Walmart is probably your best choice at this point. I mean, consider Amazon. They have done jack squat. They haven't released any information on emissions, on environmental performance across their supply chain. They've never released a sustainability report. Walmart's been doing this for well over a decade. And, you know, there's a broader conversation about about whether or not you should shop at big retailers. But... Um, you know, we all shop at many of these large retailers. And when you compare them side by side, and if you just take the t- two of the biggest, Walmart and Amazon, Walmart blows Amazon out of the water. And Amazon is finally starting to try to catch up. I and mean, they put together a sustainability team last year. And I think they're scrambling because they realize that they're getting their butts kicked on this, and people actually do care about it.
1: Yeah. And you know, when uh, Jigger was mentioning helping, you know, leveraging the NGOs, one thing I also hope that this pushes forward is keeping the Energy Star program alive, because this has been a real boon for them is to be able to promote those products with the Energy Star label. And I'm hoping that because of their leadership that we don't lose that program.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully it finds a better home at UL or some other place. But um Um, I mean, look, I think the Energy Star program is valuable. Look, I think that one thing that we talked about before was Walmart's role on the presidential council and politics and all that stuff. And I don't think that that has changed. My point of view is still that like Walmart's doing this for the right reasons for their clients. But like when they get in conversations with the president of the United States, I still don't think this makes their top five talking points. You know, those are going to be more around labor and around, you know, regulation and other things that really affect their core business. And also, let's just like, you know, talk about the cynical side of this. Walmart has had several tough years of really bad PR, um, given the, the Mexico scandal and some of the other pieces. And, you know, being a real leader on this helps to blunt some of those uh, criticisms.
0: I don't think you're wrong on the type of influence that they'll try to have on the president, Jigger, My guess is that the influence that they'll try to exert on the climate piece will be to band together with a bunch of other corporations and sign a letter to the president and to Congress, you know, explaining why we need international leadership on climate, why we might need a carbon tax. Um, Those are the sorts of things that Walmart and other big corporations will
2: probably do rather than bend the president's ear directly. I think the corporations have a very large impact on state policy. But I think on the federal government, I mean, look, Walmart right now is fighting tax reform. They don't want these locational based, you know, taxes where they have to pay, you know, a lot of taxes on imports and no taxes on exports. And so I am sure that 99.9% of their efforts on that and 0.1% is on this for the federal government.
1: Jigger, I think you're right on the federal front that they have a huge list of things that they're worried about, not the least of which has to be the border adjustment tax that's being discussed. But um, on the state level, I just can't understate the value that they are in the room as really representing consumer interests. And they do that because they are a large consumer, but then they can pass that along. And I think uh, their leadership is really on a grassroots level really, really important. And those are the people that are out there purchasing things that we care about on you know clean energy. Um, th- those, those are people that are actually purchasing all of those clean technologies that we really care about.
0: On to FERC now. After four paralyzing months of having only three commissioners, the Trump administration has finally nominated two Republicans to their posts. Neil Chatterjee, formerly served as Mitch McConnell's energy advisor and Robert Powelson is an energy commissioner in Pennsylvania. And these two men, if confirmed, are going to enter FERC at a time of immense change to the agency's authority and increasing complexity of the kinds of market problems that that FERC is grappling with, most notably the blurring lines between retail and wholesale markets as distributed energy expands. And uh, also pipeline siting. a lot more opposition to pipelines, a lot of pipelines in the works right now. And Natural gas companies have been up in arms because without a quorum, uh, a lot of these projects have been stalled. So when they get in, we presume when they're um, actually confirmed, that they're going to have a lot to grapple with. Catherine, who are these appointees to start with?
1: Yeah, so Neil Chatterjee uh, has been in the mix for a while um, being talked about. He's Mitch McConnell's energy, senior energy policy advisor. He is, I met with him just this week again. Um, We're pretty familiar with him. He is uh, very intellectually curious. He's very uh, he's been very open to meeting with people and learning because FERC is a really complicated agency. So, um, you know, he's he's maybe not what you would think of immediately as someone who would go into FERC. But one person we know that you know in the not too distant future was Phil Moeller. Phil Moeller started as a Senate staffer. I worked with him when he was the. staff lead on interior appropriations for a Republican senator from Washington State, Slade Gorton. And he was great to work with as a staffer. But when he went to FERC, I said, "How how is he going to know anything about that, how that agency runs? And it turns out he was a good regulator. He was smart. And like Neil, he was intellectually curious. He didn't always uh, go the way that You know, my clients would want to go on issues, but he always had a very reasoned approach. He wasn't a knee-jerk, you know, ideologue at all. And I think Neil is going to be something like that. Um, Rob Powelson is on the Pennsylvania Public Utilities Commission. He's been the president of NARUC, the National Association of Regulators. And, you know, he would bring a state uh, leaning to FERC, which they often bring state regulators, Colette Honorable, um, whose term goes off in June is a state regulator. She's from Arkansas. Um, Tony Clark was a state regulator. A lot of folks that they put in a FERC was state regulators, and I think that's also not a bad thing. They bring the position of having to regulate state poli- and deal with state policies and state utilities on that level, and and they understand kind of this this tension between wholesale market regulation and state policy. So. I think neither one of them, you know, I know Powelson has opinions, but I don't think they're ideologues. And FERC is just not an agency for ideology. It's really a process agency.
2: So the part that scares me is really, you know, Neil Chatterjee. I think, you know, he's um, a smart guy by virtue of the fact that he's Indian. But... um you know, like I, what I'm really concerned about is if you, wait a second. If you didn't know, Jigger is Indian. Just, just, just to clarify, there to anybody who can't can't see his face. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I am like I have no doubt in my mind that Rick Perry has no idea how to implement this sort of like federalism piece down to the state level regulations. But FERC really can sort of influence state policy by screwing over states, by threatening federal action. And and Neil is, you know, like very skilled in the Mitch McConnell way of doing business. And so I'm a little concerned that they actually get a little bit of their administrative act together between him and Rick Perry, but I'm hopeful that they don't.
1: Yeah, I, I do think there is one of the big issues that FERC is grappling with, and they just had a technical conference to kind of try to work through some of the tensions that states are butting up against with FERC jurisdiction. And especially as FERC is doing things like this NOPER on energy storage and aggregated distributed energy resources, they're looking at, you know, how do we adjust the wholesale markets so that innovators can participate? And a lot of that innovation is on the edge of the grid, and that innovation would be very great if you could stack your benefits and participate in meeting state goals as well as providing value to the wholesale markets. Otherwise, you're just leaving that value out of the mix altogether. But I think that tension will still exist. It's something they need to work through. But the issue is that you really do have to go through a process of public comment. You have to follow case law. I mean, it is just, it's so process heavy that yes, you could your thumb a little bit on it and i think certainly chairman wellinghoff did when he was there but i also think it's it's going to be impossible for them to go backwards they've already opened up the markets and competition is good for customers and competition is good for innovation and i think if anything things will revert more to states
2: you know that he was saying that some of the rps standards and some of the deployment of renewable energy and wind contracts and some of the existing contracts could be invalidated based on national security issues of having more baseload power which we established previously you know like isn't a defined term although there was a listener who said that his textbook in 2002 including baseload power but my education is pre 2002 <laughs> right so actually to to clarify this
0: was a story a follow up story on some comments that Rick Perry had made during the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit in New York a couple weeks ago and Perry said that he would consider using federal authority to try to change state policy, the opposite of energy federalism, basically. And, um, I, you know, it sounded like Perry hadn't really thought it through a lot. But, oh, shocking. <laughs> but he said he was open to using federal authority to change state policy and to meddle in um, state renewable portfolio standards.
1: But. Um, any of the authority that DOE has over FERC is really temporal, and so there's a time limit. There's also, it has to be um, based on something that's a real, you know, really national um, energy emergency. Like the energy crisis in California, they use this authority. But you are not going to see FERC take huge action against states. This, the blowback you would get is, um, would be unbelievable from states.
0: Well, I will say, Catherine, that I've had a number of conversations with folks who are close to the situation like yourself, and many of them have the same takeaway that you do, that, um, you know, these are thoughtful people, that, um, you know, we can't necessarily brand them right away, that they're going to think through these issues. And, um, you know, they're not ideologues. And so I'm, I'm picking up the same intel that you are.
1: Great. Yeah, I I think we just have to wait and see. And I don't think we can jump to conclusions. And I'm really hoping also because um, Commissioner Honorable's seat expires in June that they bundle um, some of these. Maybe they'll do Chatterjee and Powelson at the same time. And I know Murkowski really wants to get to – everybody wants FERC to actually be staffed and be functional. It's just does not – it's not good when it's broken and not working. Um, But hopefully they'll bundle – this third Republican with a Democrat to make sure that those two get through so that it's fully, you know, it's it's got the full quorum.
0: Okay, well, I think that's enough about FERC. Um, Catherine, why don't you start us off and tell us something we don't know? You got any good stories?
1: I have a really good one. Well, it's, I think it's a good one, which is that... The CRA, the Congressional Review Act on methane emissions, failed in the Senate this week. This was a huge surprise. It was the top priority for American Petroleum Institute. And... Um, it was a big deal. Three senators voted against it on the Republican side, uh, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Susan Collins. Graham and Collins had been early no's. They had said very publicly, but McCain was actually convinced on the floor of the Senate. And there was, uh, there were you know, watching that, if you go back and look at the tapes, it is amazing the work that all of those um, Republican leaders were putting to McCain. And he finally just put his hand up and put his thumb down and said no, and it failed. It was a big deal because um, Corey Gardner, who is the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, so he is responsible for getting all those Republican senators voted for. You know, he API has been giving them a ton of money, and this was on him. And Colorado is the model for methane rules. They are they have much stricter rules than BLM. And you know, he has the most to lose. Gardner Portman voted for this rule. Um, and Ohio also have regula- has regulations in place. So it was one of those votes that for them was really bad because it did not go their way, and they also voted for the rule, the rule to be taken back. And now, of course, there, there are going to be battles in court and at the BLM, but this was a big deal that the Senate um, did not roll back on this regulation.
0: Jigger, what's your story? Tell us something we don't know.
2: So a few weeks ago, um, the Indian government announced something a little bit out of the blue that said that they want to try to get all vehicles in India to be battery powered by 2030. It's an audacious audacious move. And um, the, what's interesting, though, about it is that they're not going to subsidize electric vehicles to get there. Instead, they're going to try to take the most cost effective applications for battery vehicles like public transit buses and really move it that way. And then to adopt battery swapping technologies a la Project Better Place um, to get there, which is pretty cool. I mean, we'll see if it works. The details are coming in the future. But, um, but I definitely think this is going to be a great way for the Indian electricity sector to get more profits uh, by, you know, selling more of its juice.
0: I'm going to revisit our conversation about Rick Perry real quick. Um of course there's that, that DOE study looking at the um reliability of the grid as more distributed energy gets deployed. And I found it quite interesting that E&E news is reporting um to you know a couple of the major organizations that would help guide electricity policy like FERC and that we just talked about and the North American Electricity Reliability Corporation NERC have not been consulted on the study thus far. And so you have these stakeholders that like have done so much modeling and have understand how the grid operates so well and they still haven't been consulted for this study about grid reliability, which I found very curious. And with that, I think we're, we're set for this week. Uh, thanks a lot to Keiko new energy for being our sponsor. We truly appreciate their support. Thanks to all of you out there. We love to hear from you. Get us through all the usual channels, you know, emails, good podcasts at greentechmedia.com is our address. We love Twitter. So interact with us, retweet us, send us your questions, your comments, disagree with us, whatever you want. Um, You can uh, leave us a rating review on iTunes, which is super helpful for helping us find new uh, audience members. You know, it's really helpful for people when they're searching for the podcast. And, uh, you know, send a link on to your friends, your family, your colleagues, if you think that they'd like this show. And if you like this show, then you'll like The Interchange, too. You've heard a couple recent episodes that we've cross-posted here, and uh, that's our show where we do, you know, interviews and a little bit more of a deeper dive on numbers from GTM Research. And my co-host is Shil Khan. So subscribe to the Interchange Podcast as well. Um, have a great week, everybody. We're going to be at the Solar Summit next week in Arizona. We're going to be uh, talking about all the latest in solar, the ups and the downs. And uh, we'll have a really spirited conversation there on stage. Catherine, we will see you then.
1: Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in sunny Arizona.
0: Jigger, have a uh, good rest of your week, and we'll talk to you next week on stage. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.